I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. We've got one of my favorite archaeologists on today. Alex, tell us who we got. Oh, we've got Richard Osgood, who is also an author. He's archaeological advisor to the government. And he's also, I think, currently archaeologist of the year. Does this mean you get to open dig sites by cutting ribbons wearing a bathing suit? You know, you've just put everybody off the whole programme, haven't you, with that image? <laughs> that's horrific. That's absolutely horrific. That's like worse than Borat. Sadly, that's <laughs> run out. But no, I didn't have to have any of those duties, um, fortunately for the world, I think, probably. What did it mean? Did you get a trophy? Yeah, I did. I got a really lovely flint trophy. It was a good day out. It was a really nice day out with current archaeology, who were fantastic. So that was a, that was a good, good, fun evening with a couple of my friends. Um, and it, it's given me given a lot of mileage to the military guys I work with to take the mickey out of me. So that's that's also. Can I just add? I'm one of those people that voted for you. You're a star. You and my mother. Um, <laughs> I'm sure. I'm, you know what? I'm sure Alex is only having me on today, given her football allegiance, because of my surname. I'm pretty sure. Pretty much. Yeah, I thought so. Thought so. Just against my better judgment, entered myself in a ballot to be one of about five people allowed to go to the Leeds game. No, oh, really. Leeds against Chelsea. Mm. Hmm. Leeds against Chelsea was altogether different, wasn't it? Yeah, we love watching that on YouTube because there's no football. It's just basically a riot. Yeah, but we're not here to talk about no, we're not. No, that mud today because that was horrific, wasn't it? That cup final replay. <laughs> uh, we're going to talk about different mud. We're going to do World War One archaeology with you today, aren't we? Yeah, that sounds good. So tell us a bit about the action at Bullecourt and why there was stuff there for you to find. When and why did it happen? Well, Bullecourt's a really interesting action, actually. It's probably one of the ones that lots of people, unless they're into the First World War, have never heard about. It's uh, part of the Battle of Arras, which takes place in the snow in April 1917. And this is after the Germans had, had withdrawn, after the Somme campaign, to a, uh, a line called the Hindenburg Line, which enables them to defend a, a smaller area with, with the numbers of troops that they've got. Um, and the, the, the offensive that took place from an Allied perspective is the British, Australians, Canadians and others were basically assaulting this line in support of the French um, Nivelle Offensive further south. So... By, 19, by 1917, the time of the battle, the British are actually in charge of Arras. They're running the city itself. If you get the chance to go to Arras, it's one of the most gorgeous places um, 
in France, I think, a really, really beautiful city. You can get below the city into the caves that were used by the Allied forces, and you see that the carvings left by New Zealanders and others are carved into these old chalk quarries. It's a really uh, moving place to, to, to go to. And Bullecourt is a, almost an afterthought. This is where the 4th Australian Division was situated, and they fight with um, some of the more um, British divisions, like the, the West Ridings, uh, and they fight in um, with, with the tanks, to attack this Hindenburg position, um, they're under the command of General Goff at this point, um, and it doesn't it doesn't go well. Um, the tanks are taken out. We'll talk about the tanks a bit a bit later on. Um, the tanks don't succeed in their objectives. The Australians suffer more um, captured soldiers from this one battle than any other battle in the entire war, and it's left quite a mark. So Bulacore um, was not the first battle of Bulacore in April. wasn't a huge success. That is a, is a curiosity. It starts off with, with great success, with lots of um, movement, lots of progression, uh, up to the best days of the Battle of the Somme. They, they succeed in pushing the Germans uh, quite a bit further backwards. They do succeed in a certain amount of surprise. Uh, and so the early days are looking very, very promising for this Allied breakthrough. Um, it peters out and the counterattacks eventually mean that the, um, the casualties suffered by, by both sides are, are, are pretty high. That we call. But the the longed hope for breakthrough, final breakthrough, doesn't doesn't actually. Um, so it's it, it's I don't know. It's probably a stalemate in many ways, but with that, uh, lots of lives lost on on both sides. And no one's really heard of it, have they? Unless you've really studied the First World War, people seem to think of um, the Somme or Passchendaele, that sort of thing. But Arras is not really one that they thought of. And if they if you don't think of Arras, you certainly don't think of, of Bullecourt down to the south. Absolutely. Uh, you've mentioned that tanks were involved. Um, yeah. How good were they at Bullecourt? How effective were they? Were they in, an integral part of the fighting? They were certainly an integral part of the, the planning for the first battle of, of Bullecourt. Tanks, um, I'm sure you know, come in in 1916, towards the end of the Battle of the Somme, they emerge in September in the place called Fleur, um, Fleur Cortelet, and that's when they're first used in anger. And they are, um, I, think, I, I think they're a great tribute to the, the Allies in, in being imaginative and trying to work out how on earth to break this stalemate, to break through these static defences um, and all these incredible inventions that happen in the First World War. The tanks are probably up there. You look at the design today of tanks, not hugely dissimilar to tracks that you can operate individually, big bit of armour with guns. It's, it's fundamentally the same design. So these wonder weapons emerge in September, um, and then they are used at Bullecourt, where the plan is to have 11 of these tanks to break the German barbed wire, to soften up the German defences. And after that's happened, then, then the Australian infantry, the 4th Australian Division, will capture the positions and, and the Allies will have great success. That's the hope, hope for outcome. Now, the tanks used, first, the Mark I tanks used in September of 1916, they had these two big steering wheels on, on the back. And fundamentally, by April 17, they've not changed massively they're not incredibly well armored um they are armored but they're not incredibly incredibly strong uh, if you hit with artillery the tank is almost certainly knocked out and you've got to think that their maximum speed on a nice flat tarmac surface is four miles an hour so really they are just colossal targets you've got a petrol engine inside spitting fumes and heating it up inside with a crew of eight cramped in this particular contraption so Although they are a phenomenal idea, they're still in the teething phases. Um, so, although integral to the battle, they're not a wild success. They don't sound like very good fun, do they? 
No, I, I think it would have been very, very brave individuals to go into these things, um, especially when you've seen them not working particularly well. The, the tanks at Bullecourt, 11 of them are used. Um, they, they're going to the, the start line. They, they arrive late. In fact, uh, the, the battle is delayed. Um, a delay it starts on the 11th of April in the, in the morning in the snow. Um, so you've got these very obvious targets up against the snow. Uh, and of the 103 tank men involved in the Battle of Bullecourt, the first battle, 52 are killed. So you've got a, a death rate of over half of one particular unit. And that just shows you just how tough a job that was. Setting aside all the, the breakdowns of the vehicles anyway, these were dangerous things to be anywhere near. So I have to ask you then, what happens to the tanks? that Because they, they just tend to ditch, don't they? Or get blown yeah. out and they don't go anywhere. Um, that's right. It? it must it must have been horrific watching this as the infantry because mm. this is your main support. You you're not using your artillery because that's going to destroy the battlefield. There, there's a bit of artillery, but nothing like the bombardment we come to associate with the. Were they thirty two tons? Uh, these twenty eight tons. The twenty eight tons just sitting on the battlefield. Then absolutely. So these twenty eight yeah. tons. Behemoths, uh, they make their move, um, they are gradually destroyed. Some do break through some of the initial German positions, um, but they, they're so unreliable they, they, they tend to break down. And once they're isolated, because they're not going in with the infantry support, it's a tactic they learn later, then, then they're easily destroyed. And these things then sit there. Um, if they break down, you're trapped in it as a crew, you are just a big target and you attract artillery, so you've got to try and get out somehow. Um, once they're destroyed, you've just got this lump of armour on the battlefield. And you can see from some of the maps that are left behind by later units that, that use the battlefield, these are allied maps, you get little sketches that say, um, knocked out tank, now used as a German observation position or a, a German machine gun position. So they are, because they're slightly forward of German lines, the Germans are able to reutilise them, and give themselves bits of cover. So the, the British will then um, hit them with artillery and things like that. So these um, 11 tanks go into action, actually nine are taken out on the battlefield so nine of these tanks are destroyed in the in the early hours of april 1917 on the on the 11th and just fly out on the battlefield this is key isn't it because the germans have missed the boat completely with tanks and this is the first time that so if we're not going to drag them away by god they are aren't they and they're going to pull them apart and see how they work yeah you're quite right alex this is this is the opportunity the germans have wanted it's a colossal shock for them when they first see armored vehicles um as it would be it's a, it's a just total change in battlefield tactics and so they've been desperate to be able to evaluate them properly and this is that 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 rare opportunity because these things are lying on the battlefield and the, the german phot photographs of the time you've got the air photographs after the battle where they're able to to work out the routes taken by the tanks because the tanks have left marks in the mud so they're able to trace those they're getting all the intelligence reports back but now they've got the physical remains of these tanks um, and they're uh, not only a thing of curiosity for the the high command the average german soldier is fascinated by them um you know if you want to go on a german ebay and put in a, a search for a First World War tank, you will find postcards of these things all over. They're quite often marked up as being from the famous tank battle of uh, 20th of November, Ombrai, but they're usually not. They're usually bullocore. This is the first time the Germans have got them, and everyone's getting photographs taken with the, the English tanks, these, these huge new designs, new vehicles. Uh, and the, the Germans are able to then take them away, or even in the field, evaluate their tactics and ammunition against them. Um, it's, it's a real breakthrough in some ways for the German high command, but in others, it leads to a bit of a false sense of security because, I said, these are Mark II tanks. Traditionally, they've been associated as being training tanks, not fully armoured. Um, so when November comes, 
the British have got a totally different vehicle, the Mark IV, which is more armoured, it's more powerful, and the German tactics that they've evaluated, largely from from the actions at Bullecourt, are not anywhere near as effective, and it's, it's a it's a great shock to them. So, what brought you to Bullecourt? Because clearly, it was not Dickey's uh, exceptional excavation skills, was it? Well, do you know what? I'm, I hope you're going to play this to him. Um, and he'll... <laughs> email and probably your address so uh, I'd, I'd be very careful what you put out um, <laughs> the reason actually was because uh, I was actually with Dickie at a place called the Peace Village in Messines um, another very famous 1917 battlefield uh, and we'd, we were doing some field work at um, Ypres actually uh, a commercial development was going on and we were looking for the remains left behind in a British cemetery called uh, New Irish Palm and whilst we were there we met up with a uh, a fabulous guy called Dave Mooter, who's ex-British infantry and now works as professional bomb disposal over in Belgium and France. So you can imagine he's pretty busy, given the amount of ordnance you find out there. And he's had a lifelong interest in Bullecourt and has been very keen to put together a fieldwork package. And collectively, we decided that the, the thing that we associated with the battle um, as, as novices in that particular campaign, as opposed to today, was, was tanks. Uh, and that it, it piqued my interest to see they're so photographed, they're so well known, these individual tanks, but was there any chance of anything being left in the ground or had it all been retrieved after the battle by the Germans or indeed after the war by the British and the Chinese Labour Quarter to, to recover the scrap value? And if you go to Bullecourt today, the museum, which is a lovely little museum in the village itself, has got lots and lots of bits of, of tank that has been retrieved over the years by the farmers as part of their recycling and just general interest. So was there anything left in the ground that we could look at archaeologically and could we get anything additional to our, our history of Bullecourt and positions of the tanks from, from that particular fieldwork. The, the one thing I, I thought there's, it would give us potentially is where the tanks finally ended, because there are lots of little tiny sketch maps, maps but they're the size of a postage stamp. Mm-hmm. Be able to get a bit more specific detail on where the final points these tanks reached um, through archaeology, I thought would be a, a valuable thing, if nothing else. Absolutely. Uh, you, you chose a particular tank to go after, didn't you, in the end? We did. We thought um, the, the overall plan is still to look for the locations of, two, of, of all the nine tanks that were destroyed so we mm-hmm. can get a fix on, on, um, on, on where they got to. And the first two we chose were Tank 797, which was destroyed right next to the uh, battalion headquarters of the 48th Australian uh, Battalion of the, the 4th Australian Division by the railway embankment from which the, the attack launched. And the other one was 796, commanded by a Scotsman uh, called Second Lieutenant Skinner. And this is the, the tank that makes it um, closest to the, the centre of the village of Bullecourt. Um, we thought that would be a good one to go to, not least because it, its potential location was in a pasture field, which meant that we didn't have to disrupt any cropping, and it meant it was more suitable for our geophysical surveys and things like that. So 797 and 796 were the two we chose. Both were what we call male tanks. So these are the ones with the big naval six-pounder guns sticking out from them. It's a, it's a very obvious schoolboy reference, really. Long, sticky-out thing from the side of it. <laughs> what Which are the names? Tank. People are going to know what the tank names were. But you know what? These ones aren't actually named. These, these, oh, these really? Are, yeah, in, in, in the bullet that the tanks aren't actually given names. These are a D something or other. I can't remember. Oh, sad times. I know, maybe we should give them a name, I don't know. Yeah, but, um, well, they have to begin with D, don't they? <laughs> yeah, Dickie. Um, yeah, Dickie. <laughs> I yeah. think Dickie deserves... Look, I may joke around about Dickie, we do that, but he is an exceptional archaeologist, and I do Dickie think Dickie and should... Dumbo, there we go. <laughs> well, you don't I like elephants, one. so... Um, so there you go. So Tank, tank 796, I'd be, it's not got a, a particularly auspicious name, but we look for 797, um, 
the interesting thing is we only got two very small permissions from the French authorities because it was new to them doing First World War Archaeology in this particular village. So we were sort of a, a strange entity to them. Um, so they gave us two permissions of five metres by five metres um, in a very big battlefield. So we had to do some very careful looking at air photographs and geophysics and field walking, all the traditional archaeological techniques so we could put our trench in the right place. Now, Tank 797, our five metre by five metre hull, found pretty much nothing. It was a big artillery crater, which had, did have some metallic elements in it, things like screw pickets, but, but no traces of the tank at all, which was a, a bit of a disappointment. We got a full field team out there just looking for the tank. So that left us with our one real opportunity, which was Skinner's Tank 796. And luckily enough, we, we did come up trumps there. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. I mean, you've told us how you, um, how you found it. Can you give us a little bit more detail on that? Yeah, so the, the first thing we, we did with, the, with this is um, you go through the battlefield and you, we call field walk. It is as simple as walking up and down the field, noting where there's concentrations of um, material, looking for the metallic elements and trying to see if there are any bits of tank and plotting where those are and working out how much blast would have affected that or the power moving it around. We didn't actually find any bits of tank in the field walking, but there was lots of first of all material um for 796 the main way of locating it was through the air photographs which are phenomenal there's some wonderful german photographs that you can still see online of of this tank in amongst this moonscape of the shattered village of bullecourt um, and then you can sort of triangulate that and then you use the the maps written by the germans and the australian um, infantry as to roughly where it was and then go through the the author's works people like paul kendall who've written some great books on on bullecourt um, but just to see roughly where it would be, Charles Bean's map in the Australian archives too. So we had a rough idea, and then from that point in, we did some geophysical survey testing the magnetic um, components in the soil just to see where we could trace the trenches. And through all these different bits, you're whittling it down. Um, it's like a big Venn diagram. And uh, we took a punt, especially as the diary said, the tank uh, 796 broke down right on the edge of this huge crater, which is why it was uh, therefore rendered in, absolutely uh, infunctional. Um, so we thought, let's put our five meter by five meter on top of the edge of that crater, roughly where the photograph said it would be, roughly where the geophysics said it would be. So it was a bit of a punt, but um, it did come off because we did find quite a bit of the tank. Oh, so tell us what you found and how it was uncovered then. Well, we've been two seasons on site now. Um, the first season, if you've ever seen an archaeological site or any of your listeners have, the, the curiosity and the thing that always happens is you find the best bits usually on the last day and usually it's right on the edge of the trench so you have to extend it a wee bit to get it out. But on the first year, um, we found bits of the, the link that drives the tank. It's like a big 
bicycle chain that the engine turns the tracks around. So we found bits of that link. Um, we also found um, bits of the ammunition. We think six pound shell found by uh, fired by these particular vehicles. But the real excitement for us was finding quite a big length, about two meters of the track itself and it had these things called grousers or some people call them spuds which are extensions from the track to give it extra grip so um massive piece of link of first of all tank track in the position where we thought 796 was and there aren't that many tanks that had used that area so pretty much it has to have come from 796 so we were right on the money that was that was really exciting and the second year we found um quite a bit more so much so we put one about one ton of the 28 tons of this tank so there's still a bit to find um, more of the shells, some of the um, percussion cap protectors from the ammunition, bits of the gun as well, which said um, the letters EWC, which is all that's left of a, of a little plaque that would have said Newcastle, uh, which is where the gun was made by Armstrong. Ah. Um, oil taps, um, bits, quite a bit of the engine, lots of the gear cogs, uh, the engineer's hammer, and we found one fired six-pounder shell case, which uh, was stamped April 17. And that was really good because that illustrated the logistical genius by this point, I think, of, of the Allied armies in being able to fabricate a shell, fill it with explosives, um, get the um, get it to the shipping ports, get it over to the Western Front, get the fuse in, put it into the vehicles, drive it up to the battlefield and fired all within a few days. Um, it really is a phenomenal effort. Um, just the sheer organisational skills by this point of the Allied armies is phenomenal. That's so mad. really exciting. Can I ask you what colour it was? Because there's all kinds of um, different sort of dazzle schemes in that. There's not a unit. Was there a uniform colour for tanks? There wasn't, was there? That's a really good question too. I mean, I think everyone's got their own opinions what it might be. And lots of, lots of people will have been to the, the Tank Museum in Bobbington or seen other tanks elsewhere. And they're painted all manner of colours really, aren't they? Sort of a khaki or a dusty brown or a green or whatever. There's all sorts of different, um, different colours that are given to it. But you've got to remember all the... Tanks that are in the museums have been repainted so many times that some of the original paint is, is just is really not there. Well, we did find um, some of the original paint on this track, and there was the red primer, which I guess is ubiquitous on most military vehicles, as an undercoat. And on top of that, um, and I'm not saying the whole tank was painted this colour, uh, certainly some of it was, it was, it was, a, it was a dark green colour. And if you look at the Pantone, and we have done that, it's more or less an approximation of a, of a British racing green. And when you think... This tank would have done four miles an hour, as I said, flat out. <laughs> British racing green. The, the reason I think it's that colour, um, Alex, is probably because this tank was made by Fosters of Lincoln. And okay. Fosters made like, all the traction engines for uh, agricultural purposes uh, before the war. And their engineering skills are then reutilised into making tanks. And I think loads of these traction engines at this time are, are painted that, that green colour. And I think they've probably just done a generic let's paint the tank that colour in the first place. The army may well have painted it a different colour later on or put camouflage colours, uh, sort of dazzle ship style onto it. That's quite possible. But certainly um, part of the tank, at least, was painted a racing green in its first iteration. Oh, I like that. Many of the guys on our, our veterans working with us who are making models, and lots of them do, to have a good start um, to know what colour to paint their little airfix kit. Do we know what happened to the crews? 
Yeah, they all survived. Um, I, I mentioned of, of the, the sheer casualty rates within this particular um, unit fighting. Well, Skinner, um, the tank breaks down on the edge of the crater, as I've mentioned, and he's therefore in a, in a large target and decides the best thing to do. There's no point staying there fighting because the, the Germans have moved up these uh, some 77 millimeter artillery pieces and they're firing point blank at the tank and it's flying off. So he decides that the sensible option is to try and retreat to Allied lines. So he gets the guys to re- recover as much material from inside the tank as they can, including some of the, the machine guns. And they retreat back to Allied lines. The entire crew survives this particular battle. And as a result, Skinner's awarded the military cross. Um, we don't know, sadly, the names of any of those members of the crew. We just know that they all survived. The only guy we do know, typically, is the officer in command, which, which is uh, Second Lieutenant Skinner, and he survives the entire war. So um, unlike much of the, the tank uh, tank story, this was a, a much more positive one for the, this crew at Bullock well, um, Can you talk to us as well, I, just on the historical front, about this um, idea that the Australians were so pissed by this um, experience at Bullecourt that they refused to go into action with tanks again? That doesn't sound right. Yeah, this is, this is, this is one of the great stories about Bullecourt because the 4th Australian Division, um, in, in many ways, it's a, it's a who's who of some of the real celebrities of the Australian Army. Um, you have Albert Jacker, who is well, known as Mad Jacker by many people. He wins, he's got a Victoria Cross already. He's also got a military cross and bar. Um, and, and if you speak to some authorities about Jacker, they said he probably should have had three VCs, uh, but it wasn't awarded because he was a um, bit, of a, bit of a larrikin in some ways and didn't play by the rules. He's an incredibly brave character. He wins his second MC at Bullegore for laying out the, the mine tape on which the the tanks are meant to follow, and he sees a German officer's located this. It's a bit like that scene in the Bridge on the River Kwai film where the guy sees the the, uh, the telecommunication wire and then uh, pull it in. Well, he sees a German officer who's found this, so he goes over, knocks out the German, and, and brings him back to Allied lines for questioning, which is just, just phenomenal. Wins an MC for it. So he's there. You've got um, uh, Harry Murray, who is another VC winner. Uh, and you've also got Percy Black, and Percy Black was described by Murray as being the bravest man in the Australian army. So he's got these three incredible characters. Now, they report very, very badly. Um, well, back, back to killed, but um, Jacker and Murray report very unfavourably about the actions of the tanks, as do some of the members of the 48th Battalion, who were based in the railway embankment. And the story goes round, and it's, it's in some of the apocryphal histories of the Great War, that the Australians, as a result, because they've suffered so many casualties in this battle, and it's a perceived colossal failure, that they refuse to have anything to do with the tanks um, later on for, for quite a long time in the war. And it's just not true, because later on that particular year, they're still fighting alongside tanks. And in fact, in June 1917, when the Battle of Messines takes place, it's almost an all-arms campaign with aircraft and, and tanks, are, tanks are used there as well. And they're used again in, in um, Ashendale later on in the Third Battle of Ypres. Uh, so, so much so that by 1918, the Australian um, General Monash, Third Division, he uses them as an integral part of his his work that, that fights around Amiens in the all-arms campaign. So certainly they can see the problems with tanks, but it's, it's not something that they... They, they desperately think that they will never, never work with them again. There are criticisms of the British tank crew saying, by some of them as well, saying they were particularly timid. Um, but I think just from those casualty rates, you can see why um, you wouldn't necessarily stay in a tank if it's destroyed, damaged, um, just taking incoming fire. That would be um, so utterly foolhardy. Um, I think the tank crews were criticised pretty harshly. Did you find any bodies at Bullecourt? 
Yeah, the Bullet Corps work's been interesting because, as you'd imagine, the amount of um, people killed in the first war and those, you know, go to the Manning Gate or um, some of the other memorials, you know, the, how many missing people there are out on the battlefields. And Bullet Corps is no exception. Um, we found uh, the remains of, let me see, one, two, three German soldiers and then um, partial remains. And the partial remains are, we presume, allied in that they're in either allied trenches or they've got allied kit on them, but you'll never be able to prove it. Um, so the, the, main, the main allied remains we found was in the second year of the program, and we found a boot. So it was an allied boot, um, and the foot was still in it. And uh, the guy that excavated it was a, a British Royal Engineer, and he also only had one foot, and he had also he'd lost an eye in his campaigns in Afghanistan. So that was a, an interesting thing for the Commonwealth War Graves, who were able to come to us and say, well, this, this foot in the boot will get what they call a scant remains grave. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they put it with a, there's a headstone, and it's the mortal remains of a, of a soldier of the Great War. And they said, well, you know, we can't say it's an unknown soldier because the guy may have survived, having lost his foot. That's we were true. Able, we were able to say, well, we can prove that because the guy digging it's only got one foot. Yeah. Um, so that's interesting. So that's got a headstone we know about. Um, that's in a, 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 the, the closest cemetery to Dubulacor. Um, and we can go visit that. We can go and you know, pay your respects to that individual soldier. And then other remains will probably go into that, that grave over the year when they, when they get they get turned up. The Germans are a different matter. Um, the process for finding um, bodies on Western Front battlefields, what you do is you stop work immediately. You report it to the local police so they're able to verify that it's not... Not a, not a murder or something similar that's taking place in Bulacor. And then you tell the local mayor, or the mayoress in this case, and then the Commonwealth War Graves. That's the process. And then the War Graves retrieve the body. Often if you've got a, an archaeological team, they'll, they'll, let you, they'll make use of your skills and you can do the excavating and give them all the, all the pieces from it. And then they determine basically by nationality what the process is from that point. Now the German bodies, uh, they are still recovered by the Commonwealth war graves and they go to the French authorities from the Brits. And then the the French authorities then hand them over to the VDK, the German equivalent of the war graves. Um, So our three German soldiers, or it's kind of two and a half really of what was left of the third chap, they went to the VDK and we're pretty certain they've been buried in Metz. Um, which is a ah. long, 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 long way away from Bulacor. Um, and I think the Germans are so overrun trying to do work on the war dead of the Second World War on the Eastern Front and the Zillow Heights and things like that, that they are they're just inundated with work. And so long as these, these individuals are buried properly, that's, that's as far as the research will go, unless you've got things like identity discs, which are, as you know, not, not particularly common to find. So of course, they're, they're not government funded either, are they? No, exactly so. So it's a really tricky thing. Not like thing Commonwealth War Graves, where yeah. our tax money goes to. Exactly. So they've got a far bigger um, uh, ability to, 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 to undertake. I mean, the British, uh, as I'm sure you know, have this unit called the Joint Casualty and Compassionate Centre, sat within the Ministry of Defence. So they will do all the work to try and identify human remains from the First World War. They'll do searches for ancestry. They'll do isotopes. They'll do DNA. They'll do all the kind of um, forensic osteology to look at weights and measurements and heights, all this sorts of stuff. And uh, mm. all the d- little clues to go with the ephemera that the body's accompanied with, if anything, like the regimental insignia. They've got all the records. Germans don't have that. Um, so what is such a sad thing is that we will never know who these these three germans are and we've managed to through chatting with people like rob schaefer um, we've managed to narrow it down to you know certain companies of which particular prussian units rather than the Württemberger unit um it's 
it's probably Prussian, but you know that's that's a massive army. So being able to tell is just going to be impossible. I'm afraid we're we, we, we're just not going to know. So these individuals have been buried; they'll be unbecancelled up in a grave in Metz, but we don't we don't know we don't know which. It'd be nice to go and visit them, but I, I just don't know whether that's going to be possible. It's a different. Um there's different rules on filming remains as well, because I know this from when we've done documentaries and the Germans are the one where you can actually film the remains. You can't with anyone else. Can you? It's really interesting. No, it was made, you know, it's been made very, very clear to us by the, uh, by the joint casualty and the Commonwealth war graves that we're not to be filming and showing British, British remains, which we haven't. And same for Australian remains. We've, we found um, parts of Australians. We found complete Australians, in fact, at, um, at Messines. Yeah, because we found uh, but, yeah the New Zealander as well at Messines when we were yeah. doing the big dig. So exactly. Um, so you're, you're able to show a drawing of it or the kit, but but not not the body. Yes, you're quite right. The Germans uh, the Germans are showing all sorts of different things. So it, it, it changes there. The French the French are quite happy to show to show it. Um, you're probably familiar with the Grimsby chums, you know, the Lincolnshires yes. that were, were shown. Um, and they were, you know, photographs all over the French press of them supposedly arm in arm lying in the, in that, in that mass grave with the boots on. Um, you know, if I'd asked to kind of publish a photograph of that, let's say if I've excavated it, I know I would be told not to. Um, so mm. it's just, just different by, by country. You're quite right. Um, there was a thing I saw in the news, um, yesterday, I think it was doing the rounds on Facebook about a lot of North African troops have been found in a trench in, in France, um, first world war. And there's pictures of those guys skeletal in, in their boots. And so that's, that's doing the rounds on Facebook. We, we have a real rule with our team as well, the excavation team, that we only let one person take the photographs, which is our photographer, Harvey. And so he's the guy that takes the photographs of our field work. So that just it just cuts out the risk of anyone putting a, a smiley selfie on Facebook. Not that they would, but you know what I mean. Um, yeah. You're not going to get this unofficial photographs of uh, with lack of respect going out accidentally. Um, and I think that's really important because it's all about dignity for these individuals whether they're you know australians british germans or, or whichever nationality so um yeah you can see the rules uh, it is just just a curiosity the difference in attitude in in germany the other strangeness for me in many ways is how our attitudes changed over the years um you think of the film the battle of the somme mm-hmm. as part of the unesco inscribed um, part of world memory and in that film there's bits of it obviously that are, are mocked up afterwards but you can see British soldiers being killed. You can see them attacking the Hawthorne Crater. These are chaps, I think, probably from the Middlesex Regiment attacking the Hawthorne Crater. And you can see some of them then retreating and not all of them. You see them, some of them dropping. And these are guys being killed. And this is shown in the, in the theatres in, um, in 1916 to, to mass audiences. I mean, more people watched this film than Star Wars when it came out. Yeah, uh, I, I, it, proportionately, because obviously box offices have gone up and it costs more and money's gone up, it's yeah. still bigger than Titanic. It's incredible. Is that right? That's that's yeah. incredible. But it's you think the biggest. There's the potential for family members who've lost loved ones on the Somme campaign to sit in a theatre and watch these people being killed. Can you imagine that now? You know, I don't know, watching news footage of the campaigns in, Af- in, in Afghanistan or Iraq and you see British soldiers being killed. Just, just an impossibility. You can't imagine it. No. So to, to have the, um, the, the um, prohibition on showing human remains in skeletal form from 100 years ago is a really interesting one when at the time you could see people being killed on film so it's just, just an interesting one isn't it? how mm. our attitudes change over a century and definitely and i definitely find it just in in general the german attitude to death and cemeteries and war cemeteries and things obviously it's it's different because they weren't 
given what we were given in terms of land and stuff, but it's yeah. a very different cultural attitude to death. And they're often very different feelings, aren't they? Um, I mean, they're just different designs. Um, and some, you know, the pros and cons to everything, the, the sort of country garden style of the Commonwealth war groves um, is one style. And then the Germans are often in the sort of, quite often a kind of foresty look, which, is, which has its own real dignity, I think. Um, but they're, they're just very different designs. Richard, thank you so much for joining us and uh, teaching some of us, especially me, about World War One tanks because I had Real no pleasure. absolute idea. So thank you so much. And we'll uh, hopefully have you back on again. That'd be great. Join us tomorrow when Christopher Davis will be with us to talk all about Fishbourne Roman Palace. Uh, it's on the south coast of England and it's absolutely fantastic. And he's going to tell you why. So join us for that one. Don't forget that we do exist on Patreon as History Hack and on Patreon as well, which is Podbean's own version. Uh, Alina and I have had massive fun doing this in 2020, uh, but life is going to change quite a lot next year and we're going to actually have to go and earn a living, etc. If we want to keep up the regularity that we've been bringing you and the kind of guests that we've been bringing you and the workload, then we will need your help. The incentives for joining on either of those platforms, we're revamping ourselves on both of them. So don't forget to go in. You can do as little as a dollar a month and it all goes towards keeping up history hack as regular as we've been able to bring it to you this year we are now on youtube we are posting all of our new episodes on there and we have our own channel and we are gradually posting all of the back episodes because we have been made aware of the fact that you can only find the last hundred on some platforms so you can go and listen to your heart's content and laugh at the cartoons and have a great time so do go over there and subscribe Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.